we'll go ahead and get started. And uh, before we do so, let me go ahead and just open up our time here to study your word this evening. We're thankful that we get the chance to uh, even connect digitally online in this way. Uh, most of all, we're thankful for, uh, for you, for who you are, our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, you have uh, just given us a great gift of salvation through Christ. And we're thankful for your word that you've allowed us to study and to know you through. And so we're, uh, we're thankful for our time this, uh, this evening where we can uh, gather uh, online to uh, hear from your word. We pray that our hearts would be open to hear it, that we would be attentive, and that we would uh, be humble in receiving your word so that we would not just be hearers, uh, but doers of your word as it transforms our hearts by your spirit's work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, we'll go ahead and get started now. I'm excited to dig into God's word with you tonight. Um, hope everyone's doing well, that your families are healthy and safe, and that you're, you've had a good week uh, so far, whether you're at school or at work. Um, we are thinking of all of you and we miss uh, just being together, um, but we are excited to uh, work through uh, the end of this section in the book of Ephesians. Uh, tonight, we're looking at chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. So if you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there, we're going to read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And we'll go ahead and read it together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may, de that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So tonight we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20, uh, but it would be helpful for us to go back uh, through the preceding verses, just so that we can understand the context a little bit better. Uh, a couple of sessions ago, Kevin taught on verses 10 through 13. We saw that spiritual warfare is a, a very present reality in all of our lives. We see this call to stand firm and to be strong in the Lord. We realize that the battle being fought is not one of flesh and blood, uh, but it's against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are to take up the whole armor of God and stand firm. 
As we get into verses 14 through 17, we see this command once again to, to stand at the beginning of verse 14. This is the, the primary command in this section, uh, followed by Paul's explanation of the various pieces of the armor of God. This armor isn't something that we create on our own. It's not the result of our own strength or might. Instead, it's the armor of God. He is the one who supplies it. It's his strength that we stand in. It's his work that we trust in. Or we want to know whether you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace and whether you can speak to God as well as about God. My hope here tonight is that well, we would be challenged by the scriptures to examine our own prayer lives. And do we have a truly biblical view of what prayer should be? Let's go to the text to find out. Uh, the first thing we should notice, and the first point tonight, is the pervasiveness of prayer. We must have a pervasive prayer life. Um, sorry, it looks like we're getting some issues. Okay. Never mind. Everyone okay? Okay, great. I'm just going to keep going. Um, but people are texting me and messaging me, but it seems like everything's back okay. So we're at point number one, pervasive prayer life. In verse 18, Paul writes that we're to keep praying, that we are to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we see from this verse that prayer is to pervade all of our lives, specifically in the context of the battle that we're fighting, battle that is not against flesh and blood. We must be people of prayer. If we're to resist the world and the flesh and the devil, we must pray. Kevin DeYoung says that prayer is a necessary duty in spiritual warfare. The Christian spiritual armor will rust if it's not frequently oiled with prayer. That's certainly Paul's message here at the end of chapter 6. If you've done your hermeneutics worksheet on this passage, uh, one of the uh, first things you'll notice and you may have picked up on is the repetition of the word all. Four times in verse 18, Paul describes the nature of prayer uh, in the life of the believer. He says, at all times, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance, and for all the saints. And this highlights all the more to us that a prayer is absolutely vital to our spiritual lives. There's uh, simply no escaping the Christian's need for prayer. We can't believe in the lie of self-sufficiency. We're not strong enough on our own to fight this battle. And one author wrote that, uh, to depend upon ourselves would be like bringing a rifle to fight a nuclear war. We simply don't have the resources to win. And here in verse 18, uh, Paul highlights when, what, how, and for whom we are to pray. First, he says that we are to be praying at all times. This is the when of prayer. It's not only the place, or this is not the only place uh, in scripture where uh, we see this call to pray 
uh, always. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, there's a simple command to pray without ceasing. Paul himself said in Colossians 1.3 that he was always praying for the church, thanking God for them. This does not mean that our every waking moment is supposed to be head bowed and eyes closed deliberately praying. It's not possible to pray in that way at every moment. What's meant here is that the pattern of our life is one of dependence on God. It means that you're always aware of what the Lord is doing in your life and the circumstances that he's brought about. It means that you pray no matter what is going on in your life. You pray in the good times. You pray in the bad times. You pray when you get a promotion at work. You pray when you get laid off. You pray when you wake up and when you go to sleep. In all of these things, in every aspect of our day-to-day lives, we're to be 100% dependent on the Lord and in communion with him. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we fall far short of this standard. I find myself going throughout my day, maybe not considering spiritual things as much as I should be. I may have a time of prayer and devotion in the mornings. I may pray before meals and with others, but is that all that our prayer life is supposed to be? If the, the only time in the day when we're pondering the things of God is 30 minutes in the morning and maybe a few minutes before we sleep, can we really say that we're actually depending on him with our lives? If the pattern of our lives should be one of continual prayer without ceasing at all times. The command here is not to be praying only when things are more difficult than normal. We're not supposed to pray only when we have a keen sense of the spiritual warfare. We're not supposed to pray only when a loved one is sick or when there's a global pandemic at hand. This means that we pray all the time. And so often we we do not pray because we fail to realize our utter dependence on the Lord. He's absolutely sovereign over every aspect of our lives. There's not one thing that comes to pass that he's not in control of. As R.C. Sproul said, there's not one single way according to the word of God that we are completely dependent upon him and we trust him fully. It means that we pray in alignment with the will of God. This isn't some super spiritual status that's reserved for elite Christians. It's not a a special blessing that God gives to some Christians and not others. Again, uh, Kevin DeYoung says that we pray in the spirit when we pray according to the truth he reveals, in awareness of the privileges he grants, and with the strength he supplies. The way to pray in the spirit is to be a Bible Christian, a gospel Christian, and a dependent Christian. If we just looked at the references to the work of the spirit in the book of Ephesians, we'd see that it's the spirit who seals us in chapter 1 verse 13. It's by the spirit through the work of the son that we have access to the father. Chapter 2 verse 18. We are, we're being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, chapter 2, 22. Chapter 3, verse 16 says we are strengthened with power through his Spirit, that we are filled with the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 18. 
when we when we take a look at the testimony of the book of Ephesians, the role that the Spirit plays in our lives becomes much clearer to see what it means to pray in the Spirit. And since the call to, to pray at all times in the Spirit comes directly after this description of the armor of God, there must be some connection between them. And we could say that praying in the Spirit is a summation of all that it is to put on the armor of God. I believe JC mentioned this uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, but when we look at the description of the armor, uh, we, we notice that all of these things have already been explained in the book of Ephesians. Truth, righteousness, gospel, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. All these things are explained in the first five and a half chapters. Ephesians is about the work that God has done through Christ in giving us new life and bringing us into a new community. Because of these spiritual realities, we are to walk in light of them. Christ is to be Lord over every aspect of our lives. We imitate God as his beloved children. We walk as children of light. We're filled with his spirit. Our lives completely surrendered to the lordship of Christ, having his word dwell in our hearts richly. We now belong to Christ. So the content of our prayers is not just a wish list of things we want to get done, but rather we come before the Lord asking that everything that is contrary to the gospel remaining in our lives and in our church may be done away with. Everything contrary to the gospel in our lives would be done away with. We once belonged to Satan. We're once following the prince of the power of the air. But now we're made alive together with Christ. We've been brought near to him by his blood, and we belong to him. Satan attacks us because we belong to Jesus. Therefore, the nature of our prayers must reflect this reality. To pray in the Spirit is to pray full of the word of God, under the lordship of Christ, as those who have been brought from death to life and now belong to him and depend upon him. If anyone knew what praying in the spirit was about, it was Jesus. If we look back and to the gospels and see what Jesus said about prayer and how he prayed, it can help us unpack this idea even more. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives clear instructions to his disciples on how to pray. And this is a, a familiar passage for all of us. He says in verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first two words of that prayer should strike us. We pray to our Father. As believers who have been made alive by the Spirit of God, we now call God our Father. We're no longer children of wrath. We're adopted children of God. When we pray, we don't only 
view God as Lord of the universe, the judge and king, which he most certainly is. We view him as our father. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. As we continue on in this prayer in Matthew chapter 6, uh, we see that the priority is on God's agenda, not our own. It's about God's glory. It's about God's name. It is focused not on man, but on God. We pray that his name would be made holy. We pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done. In spirit-filled prayer, we do not pray for our own agendas. We pray for God's agenda. And this is what the Lord's Prayer is calling us to do. It's calling us to take our eyes off of ourselves and focus on the presence of the Lord and what he wants to accomplish. And this is true as well of Jesus's prayer in the garden where he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was all about the mission and glory of God in his prayers. Even looking at John 17, Jesus's high priestly prayer, see that Jesus is occupied with the Father's glory. He prays in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In the beginning of this prayer, it's focused on the work of Christ, that, uh, the work that Christ has done in accomplishing the will of the Father. So there's a clear recognition of the, the purposes and the plan of God. Later on in John 17, he goes on to pray for his disciples, the 12 or the 11, and for all who would believe in him through their words. Major themes here are unity, holiness, sanctification, fellowship, and the fact that these people belong to Christ. So often he says that the Father, he refers to the disciples as those who have been given to him by the Father, and they're his. So even in Jesus's prayer, the truth that believers belong to him is a central facet. This is what it looks like to pray in the spirit. What does that look like for us now? Right? We've seen from uh, the testimony of the book of Ephesians regarding the spirit's role in our lives. We've seen the many facets of the armor of God. We've seen the example of Jesus. Right now we're in this unique time for us. We're facing challenges that we maybe haven't uh, faced before. We're confronted with a virus we cannot see. Some of us have lost jobs. Maybe we know someone who's dealing with sickness. Maybe we're feeling lonely and isolated. How do we pray at all times in the spirit right now? Well, first, we need to be filling our minds and our hearts with the truth about God. We need to be reminded that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he loves us and cares for us as our father. We should be praising God for his 
goodness and his mercy that he has shown to us. In the midst of our loneliness, we pray to a God that is with us. In the midst of our worry, we pray to the God of peace. We should pray that our hearts would not be caught up in worrying about ourselves. We should be confessing our sins of self-reliance and pride. Our prayers should show that we trust God completely and depend upon him for all of our needs, both spiritual and physical. And we should pray that his will would be done, that our hearts would be thankful, no matter the circumstance. So we pray at all times in the spirit. And that's the first thing about prayer that we see in verse 18. The second thing, and we'll go through the rest of these a little bit quicker. Uh, the second all in verse 18 is with all prayer and supplication. This means that we're to be praying not only all the time, but about all things. We're to be praying all kinds of prayers. It means that there's nothing too big to pray about, and there's nothing too small to pray about. I wonder if the only things we ever pray about are the trials we're going through, or the big decisions that we have to make, or our food. Right? Isn't there so much more that we can be praying about? We should pray about our jobs our families, our physical needs, our spiritual needs, the needs of the church, our country, our leaders, the big choices and the small choices. When we're praying in the spirit, there's not a single single request that we can bring to God that he doesn't want to have brought to him. Not talking about when we have impure motives and, and the rest, like God isn't our genie. But when we're living a life that is utterly cast upon the Lord for all of our needs, we can go to him with anything when we're praying in the spirit. And in order to, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, we must pray in every way because Satan is looking to attack us in every way. If we're strong in one area of our lives, he'll come at us from another direction. We must pray for everything. You get the sense here that our prayer life has much room for variety. There's a, a vast range of prayers that we have at our disposal. Sometimes we may pray very systematically, going down a list that we've prepared beforehand. Other times we may pray spontaneously as circumstances arise. We may pray long prayers or short prayers. We may pray prayers of thankfulness, of praise, of confession, of adoration of lament, or of joy. We might pray through a passage of scripture. We might uh, perhaps pray through a book of prayer, like uh, the Valley of Vision. Is our prayer life so limited that we nearly pray the exact same thing every day? Has prayer become just another item to check off your to-do list? Is it something you mindlessly recite not really considering the words that you are saying. Thoughtless prayer. He says, I believe there are tens of thousands whose prayers are nothing but a mere form, a set of words repeated by rote, without a thought about their meaning. Some say over a few hasty sentences picked up in the nursery when they were children. Some content themselves with repeating the creed forgetting that there is not a request in it. 
Some add the Lord's Prayer, but without the slightest desire that its solemn petitions may be granted. Words said without heart are as utterly useless to our souls as the drum beating of the poor heathen before their idols. Where there is no heart, there may be lip work and tongue work, but there is nothing that God listens to. There is no prayer. Saul, I have no doubt, said many a long prayer before the Lord met him on the way to Damascus, to just praying for our meals and that we would have a good day. I consider the prayers of Paul in Ephesians. Just in this book alone, Paul's prayers. In chapter 1, verses 16 through 23, you see him give thanks. He prays for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. He prays uh, for the church that their, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they may know the hope to which God has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. He prays that uh, they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Do we pray this way? Do our prayers look like this? In chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 21, he prays uh, that the church would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they would know the vastness of the love of God in Christ, and that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. He acknowledges that God is able to do far more than we ask or think. And finally, he prays that God alone would receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Again, do our prayers look like this at all? Or are prayers just limited to a few things that we have going on in that day? Our prayer life needs to vastly expand. So we've seen that we're to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Next, we see that we're to keep alert with all perseverance. This is the third all statement in verse 18. At all times, with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance. The schemes of the devil are many. The temptations from the world and our flesh constantly linger. So we must keep alert and persevere in prayer. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in the garden. In Matthew 26, 41, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In a moment where distress would befall the disciples, Jesus tells them to keep alert so that they are not overconfident in their own strength. Because our flesh is weak, we must always be alert, continuing steadfastly in prayer and dependence on the Lord. Elsewhere in in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus tells this parable of the persistent widow. And Luke says, right in that first verse, he says that he told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the very purpose of the parable is stated right in the opening verse. Jesus was calling his disciples to persevere in prayer. Because even an unrighteous judge would eventually listen to this widow's pleas. How much more will will our Father in heaven listen to his children? Let us always pray and not lose heart.
especially in this context of spiritual warfare, we must be all the more diligent to keep watch. We know that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Therefore, Peter calls us to be sober-minded and watchful in 1 Peter 5. So do we persist in prayer? Do we persevere in prayer? Again, J.C. Ryle, gems on prayer, J.C. Ryle. In his Thoughts for Young Men, he writes, But few who pray, few who cry unto God, few who call upon the Lord, few who seek as if they wanted to find, few who knock as if they hungered and thirsted, few who wrestle, few who strive with God earnestly for an answer, few who give him no rest, few who continue in prayer, few who watch unto prayer, few who pray always without ceasing and faint not. Yes, few pray. It is just one of the things assumed as a matter, of course, but seldom practiced. A thing which is everybody's business, but in fact, hardly anybody performs. It's everybody's business, but hardly anybody performs. Prayer is our business. It's our duty to remain steadfast in our prayers. The evil one is constantly on attack, so we must persevere in prayer. So we're to pray at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, keeping watch with all perseverance. And fourthly, we're to pray for all the saints. Again, when, when we step back and take a look at the whole book of Ephesians, we remember that Christ has come in and completely transformed our lives individually, but he's also created this entirely new community. The gospel isn't just about you. Our Christian lives can't be individualistic by very definition. Let's take a quick look at some of these passages that speak to this new community, even just in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In verse 22, he says that he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Going down to chapter 2, verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul urges the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then in verse 11, the leaders of the church are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And we can, we can go on with more passages simply from the book of Ephesians. We're to pray for all of the saints because we're all one body. We're not isolated from one another. What happens to one part of the body affects all the other parts. So how could there be unity among us if we're not praying for one another? 
I have to realize that it's not just me who's under attack from the devil. Like every member of our body is under attack. So he wants them to be lazy about their faith. He wants them to believe in false gospels. He wants them to live unholy lives. He wants them to be self-sufficient and proud. And he wants the individual members to isolate themselves. And because of these assaults on the church, we must be in prayer for one another, that we might take up the armor of God together and stand firm against his schemes. So we must pray for all of the saints. We pray at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance for all the saints. As we go into verse 19 and 20, back in Ephesians 6, Paul asks that the church pray also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is just an application of the principle to be praying for all the saints. And Paul asked them that they would be praying specifically for him. It's actually very interesting to take note of what Paul asks them to pray for here. Remember the context of this letter. Paul's writing to them while he's imprisoned in Rome. He's in chains. He calls himself an ambassador in chains. Yet what does he desire? What would be our request if we were put in jail for preaching the gospel? That most of us would want to get out. We would say, uh, pray that I would get out of here soon. We would want better food or better living conditions. Not Paul. Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So what's, what's on Paul's mind? He's not worried about being treated fairly or getting more rest. His desire is that the gospel would be proclaimed. He desperately wants the good news of Jesus Christ to be preached. There may be an opportunity for Paul to, to come before the judges or a council or, or other authorities. What ought he say to them? In that moment, there may be a temptation to, to give in. There may be a temptation to, to shrink back or water down the message. So he's in need of prayer. And Paul was certainly in the midst of a spiritual battle, a battle that Satan would love to have seen include as little gospel preaching as possible. But it was Paul's obligation to proclaim this mystery of the gospel that he speaks of. He wasn't called to any other task. His mission was to share the news that reconciliation with God is available to all men, both Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Christ alone. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul calls this the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Later in, in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In 1 Timothy, Paul, Paul says he's been entrusted with the gospel and that he's been appointed to be a servant of Christ. 
we see here that there is a priority of preaching the word of God. There's priority on preaching because Satan is a deceiver. The truth needs to be proclaimed because we live in a world full of lies. This really encapsulates just the end of this section in Ephesians 6. The two most essential weapons we have in the fight against the devil are prayer and the word. We don't fight against the devil with special incantations or mystical practices or religious rituals. We wage this war. We stand firm by praying at all times in the spirit and by preaching the gospel. It's a battle for truth. Satan's a liar. He's the father of lies. And we confront these lies with the sword of the word of God, which is truth. This is what Jesus prayed for his disciples as they were going out into the world, that they would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. A simple application of this passage for us, our church, is that we should be praying for Pastor Mark. One of the primary things that we should be praying for is that he would be given the words to speak. We should pray that when he enters that pulpit every Sunday, it wouldn't be his own words that come out, but that it would be the life-giving words of the Lord. This is the preacher's duty. It's his obligation to preach the gospel, not self-help, not good advice, not a cute story, but the unvarnished truth of the gospel. Preaching truth is a spiritual war. We need to be in prayer for our pastor and our elders. They're the ones Satan would love to bring down because they're the ones who are teaching the word of God. Satan knows this. They need our prayers. So as we close tonight, I would hope we would all consider the health of our prayer lives. Is our spiritual armor rusty and weak due to a lack of prayer? Have we thought rightly of prayer? Do we pray like Christians? And do we pe- do we pray as people brought from death to life? And do we pray as people who are owned by Christ and indwelt by his spirit? These things would be great to discuss in your small groups over the next few weeks. And uh, I'd encourage you to make the most of that small group time. What we've read in these, just these few verses should radically change our small group times so that we're not caught up in the man-focused things of the world, but we're devoted to the word of God and the spiritual matters that are at stake. Would we speak of spiritual issues, issues of truth, of holiness, issues of peace, faith, and righteousness. Would we pray these things knowing that Christ is our Lord and that he has made us one together with him? Let's close our time in one word of prayer. Lord, we are thankful just once again for your word. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for your love for us and the work that you've done in bringing us from death to life. We need your help, Lord, as we uh, go throughout our days. Uh, There is a a spiritual war uh, in our hearts. Lord, Satan is scheming. 
He wants us to believe lies and he wants us to, uh, to fall into sin against you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that stands firm together, uh, that we would pray at all times in the spirit, that we would keep alert and persevere in our prayers, that we would pray for one another, and that we pray for the gospel to go forth. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word this evening. Help us to be uh, a people of prayer. Help us to be humble and dependent upon you in every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, that's it for tonight. Um, we don't have a Q&A this evening, uh, but please do submit your questions. Uh, the elders will uh, definitely receive those and go through as many as they can on Sunday mornings. Uh, so do submit your questions uh, in the forms that have been uh, distributed rather than later. All right. Have a good evening, everyone.